Radio Mano Papachango. Welcome to another episode of Tangentially Speaking. I would especially like to welcome all the uh, the fags, the spicks, the japs, the chinks, the honkies, the lesbos, the dykes, the mix, the kikes, the nips, the Jews, the niggers, the sand niggers, the Chinamen, the Eskimos, the redskins, savages, wetbacks, motherfuckers, fatherfuckers, slant eyes, whores, John sluts, beta males. Queers, retards, cripples, cheeseheads, neck, rednecks, trailer trash, baby killers, Jesus freaks, loan sharks, deadbeats, the fuzz, the pigs, the cops, the robbers, and the podcasters, last and least. I'm calling this my uh, the manifesto of linguistic freedom. I think that, and obviously I'm, I'm you know, tweaking... Uh, those that are easily offended or, or even maybe not so easily offended. Uh, but, you know, I've been thinking about this situation recently, the whole thing with Bill Maher, where he made a joke uh, using the word nigger that wasn't detrimental or, or uh, wasn't attacking black people. And But then it became a big controversy. And then the next episode of his show, he had some um, black guests on who were explaining to him how hurtful the word was and, you know, how historically there's just absolutely no way that he could be justified in using the word, even given his long record of as being someone who defended uh, justice in, in the racial area and other areas. And I've been thinking about this and, um, you know, I have to say, First of all, if you listen to this podcast, you know me, you know, you know, my shtick. If this happens to be the first time you've ever heard the podcast, then let me just say, um, you know, like all the best white racists, I, I don't think I'm racist. Uh, I'm married to a woman who grew up in Africa. Uh, I've had serious relationships with people who are not white. Now, maybe I've got a fetish for non-white people. I don't know. My sister's married to a black American guy. Um, there are a lot of black people in my life and, and people, non-white people in my life. Um, but, you know, maybe that's not enough. Maybe I'm still racist on, on an unconscious level. I understand that exists. I understand that institutional racism is extremely virulent in American society. I understand that black men are being murdered by cops weekly for nothing other than the fact that they're black men and uh, white men seem to be terrified of them, uh, including cops who should have their shit together a little bit more than that. But uh, I understand that that is the case here. I understand that uh, black kids uh, are much more likely to, to have shitty schools and, and shitty access to food and um, to be pushed into prison, the whole prison industrial complex. I understand that. I understand that racism and uh, the history of slavery are extremely damaging and unfair and 
alive and well and not a thing of the past. So I acknowledge all that. But I also feel that there's something strange and potentially very dangerous about giving any individual or even any group of people ceding the right to use a word because some of them are claiming that it's offensive. Now, I'm not saying that people don't have the right to be pissed off if you use the word, and I'm not saying that words uh, can't be harmful. But what I'm saying is that I think the principle of, you know, we can call it the First Amendment principle of having the right to say anything, freedom of speech, is more important than the idea that a particular group, because of a historical or even a current uh, political injustice, has the right to dictate to the rest of us what words are acceptable and what words aren't. I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem that leads to all sorts of unanticipated other problems. Now, I think the first problem with that is that the word isn't the problem. The problem is that black people are being fucked over in American society in lots of different ways that are structural, that range from the, the rate that they're being charged for a mortgage when they walk into a bank with the same assets and the same credit history and the same you know, background as a white person, they're going to end up paying a higher rate just because they're black. That is bullshit. That should be illegal. That should be prosecuted. The fact that black people are being shot by cops just for being black people. The fact that this guy in, in Minnesota got shot when he told the cop, like, hey, I have a weapon, uh, you know, I have a license for it. And the cop just fucking blasts him out. And the NRA doesn't say anything in defense of this guy, even though he should be a poster boy for the NRA. These things are serious. And my using the word nigger is in no way meant to minimize the suffering of black people or any other group. But I think that the debate over the language pulls our attention away from the real shit that is causing the damage. The word is not hurting anybody. If the word were hurting people, then black people wouldn't be using it with each other. The fact that it's in all the rap songs, it's in all the conversations, it's all, it's everywhere in, in black society. And then, but white people have to like pretend, you know, we used to, we have to use the N word. It doesn't make any sense. It's just a, it's just a fucked up little power play. Um, and even though my sympathies are very much with uh, black American culture, uh, I think that this distracts from the real problems. I think this is the shiny thing that's held out. Oh, why don't you people all just argue about a word while we rip the inner city apart, while we put 25% of black men in prisons, while we make sure you don't get to vote if you've ever had a conviction of a felony so you're pulled out of the, the political process 
while we fuck up the voting situation so that there are five hour waits to cast a vote if you're in a black district, whereas in a white district, you walk right in, vote and you're in your car. You don't even have to turn off the fucking air conditioning. Let's look at that. Because those situations are what are really causing the problems, not who uses this word or that word. I mean, I, and it's not only a racial thing. All right, but let's stick with the racial issue for a minute. Acknowledging the fucking horrendous history of slavery in the United States. What about the Native Americans or Indians? Uh, it was still not clear what word you're supposed to use there because, you know, a lot of uh, well-intentioned white people decided that calling these people Indians was offensive to them. And then a bunch of the people in question turned around and said, well, we call each other Indians. And actually, you know, that's not the problem. We don't, we don't mind. We like being called Indians. It's fine. It doesn't matter. But anyway, some people insist on calling them Native Americans. I don't fucking know. The point is, they got fucked as hard as slaves got fucked right? They, it was a genocide, no doubt about it. Fucking genocide. They were hunted down and shot like fucking coyotes, uh, you know, c cutting their ears off and cutting their, their fucking tits off and scalping was something that was first done to the Indians. It was introduced by the colonialists. The, f the horror of what was done to these people is, is beyond comprehension, just as slavery is beyond comprehension. I think there's a like a, an outer limit to ho how horrible people can be to one another. And both of those cases fit, right? And then we can talk about the Jews in Germany, and we can talk about Pol Pot in Colombia, and we can talk about the rape of Nanking, and we can talk about, you know, the fucking Belgian Congo, History is full of examples of incredible cruelty and dehumanization of, of one group to another group. Now, do every one of those groups get, the, get a word that they're allowed to use and no one else is? I don't think so. Is there a word that Native Americans can use and the rest of us can't as a, like a weird kind of linguistic reparations or something? I don't think so. And then taking the whole racial thing a little further, uh, you know, as I mentioned, Casilda grew up in, in Africa. Uh, my best, better example, because Casilda's not really black, even though she's from Africa, but my, my best friend's um, wife, born in the Congo. I think I've mentioned her before on this podcast. She's as black as you can be. She's as black as, you know, black Mercedes. She's that kind of blue black. Now, can she use the word nigger, even though her family has absolutely no, no connection to the legacy of slavery? Now, she, she gets really annoyed by black Americans, you know, sort of saying, hey, you're one of us. And she's like, well, no, actually, you thinking I'm, that we're in this thing together is an expression of racism, you're saying that we have more in common than you have with, you know, like a poor white person who grew up down the street from you in Alabama simply because of the color of my skin. I grew up in Africa and Paris. So how do I have anything in common with you? That's racist, really. 
right? Making assumptions about someone based upon the color of their skin. That, that is, I believe, the dictionary definition of racism. And yet it happens all the time. Um, yeah, so, so the whole thing is very confusing to me. And I think that, you know, maybe this is fueling th this kind of linguistic uh, reparations uh, is fueling the culture of outrage in the United States, which underlies a lot of the problems that we're having here, that we have somehow accepted the idea that we need to shape our language around the, the sort of the, the boundaries of offense of other people. And so we're running around talking like children, you know, with the N word and the C word and the R word and all these stupid fucking expressions that we're using that are, you know, seem to be meant to say, if we don't say the word, then the, somehow the problem isn't as bad. We're addressing the problem by not naming it. Where, as far as I can tell, the first step to addressing a problem is naming it, is talking about it openly. Not fucking playing these childish games with, with language as if, it, you know, it's like, the, it's like the kid that covers her eyes and thinks that, you know, because she can't see anything, she's invisible. It, just because you don't say the word doesn't make it go away. And in fact, the more attention we, we spend on policing our language, the less attention we're giving to the real fucking problem, which isn't that people say nigger or kike or fucking spick or whatever. It's how we treat other people. It's that we're grouping other people and making assumptions about other people and creating this kind of demonization process of other people. Now, I know some people are going to say, yeah, Chris, but using those words is part of the process of demonizing them. Sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it isn't. Just like, you know, you can, you can make generalizations about people based on race that, that, that aren't even meant in a negative way, and they're not even necessarily inaccurate. There are commonalities um, you know, and, and some of them are align with culture, which aligns with race in some ways. I, I know race is not really a scientific construct and neither is species. No, you ask a biologist what a species is and, and they'll stammer because nobody really has defined it. You can't really define it because the definitions that you give are always open to every definition I've ever heard for a species there are a million fucking exceptions. And yet the concept seems to be useful for the cognitive process of talking about animals and grouping them, but we still know that those groups are artificial and inadequate and inaccurate to a large extent, and yet biologists keep doing it um, because the alternative is, is confusion. Anyway, that's I'm not saying races are analogous to species, by the way. <laughs> that, that would get me in a lot of trouble. It's just an example of, of categories that don't really make sense. Uh, okay, so have I gotten myself in enough trouble here? I mean, my last, my last point in this is I was at a party 
a while ago and I made some joke about, you know, somebody being a bunch of pussies and a, a woman at the party sort of stopped and said, oh, I'm uncomfortable with the way you use that word pussy just now and, you know, used it as an insult and, you know, I'm, I don't think that's fair to my pussy. And, and the thing that is interesting about that is that the term pussy as a, you know, denigrating term, meaning someone who doesn't have uh, courage or is fearful and timorous and all that, as far as I can tell, comes from pussy cat, right? Scaredy cat, the cat that goes and hides under the bed when there's any thunder. Um, or it may be related to the word pusillanimous, which is timorous and, and afraid and, you know, lacking courage. So I don't even think etymologically when you call someone a pussy, I, I don't think the origins of the word have anything to do with vaginas. Or the, or the origins of the usage, I should say. But what's interesting is that most people now think it does. They think that when you call someone a pussy, you're calling them a vagina, essentially. Even though the origins of the term had nothing to do with that. And so then you get into this question of like, well, okay, that's not what the word means necessarily. But if most people think it does mean that, then now does it? You know, where where's the definition come from? Does it come from what most people believe or does it come from what it was coined to mean? Very confusing. Anyway, I don't mean to be gratuitously offensive. I just thought it was worth talking about this because, hey, a podcast, you know, the whole reason I do this podcast and, and I think, I guess, a reason a lot of you listen to it is that this is a place where anything can be said. Anything. And I think that's really important that there is a place in an open society where anything can be said, where I can talk about dicks or I can talk about, you know, whatever the fuck. I mean, I don't want to I don't want to worry about whether I can talk about that or not. That's why I don't take any advertising. That's why I keep this just me to you as clean and clear as possible. And as, as much sympathy as I have and as much outrage as I feel for the sort of institutionalized racism that, that are obviously very important in this country, I don't want to give up the principle that any word is fair. Anything can be said. And if you, if you give up that word, you give up one word, then you're giving up other words, then you're running around saying the C word and the R word and the N word and sounding like a fucking fourth grader. I think we need to grow up. We need to look at the substance of what's going on and stop getting distracted by disputes over language. You know, you're transgender that is fine. I want you to have the right to use whatever fucking bathroom you want, to go to whatever school you want, to do whatever you need to do. You should have every right as much as I do or anyone else does. But don't tell me what pronoun I have to use. I can't even remember my own fucking name half the time and the name of the person I'm talking to. And now I got to remember to call you Zer or whatever the fuck it is now. I don't know. That shouldn't in my opinion, that shouldn't be the focus. The focus should be make sure you get all the benefits that anyone else gets in terms of marriage rights, inheritance rights, going to school, access to money, 
taxation and all the important tangible benefits of society, you need to have as much access to them as anyone else does. And that goes for people with physical disabilities and mental disabilities, racial subgroups, minorities of every fucking kind. That's what's important, not the words. All right, I've been talking way too long about this shit. I'll stop now. Last point before we get to this amazing, truly amazing episode. Uh, I'm sort of tacking this on. I'd already recorded the intro, which I'm going to segue into here. Some of the, the other part, introducing the guest, Kaj Larson, former Navy SEAL, uh, Harvard Kennedy School of Government, uh, vice correspondent, CNN correspondent, uh, very interesting, very intelligent guy. I should probably apologize to him for contaminating the intro to our episode with all my racist <laughs> ravings. <laughs> but anyway, that's what I've been thinking about. Uh, uh, oh, I wanted to talk about um, the Costa Rican thing I mentioned in the last Roma. If you didn't hear that, um, I've been talking to the folks at Rhythmia in Costa Rica about the possibility of us having sort of a tangentially speaking week down there. Looks like it's going to happen. They're setting things up so that you'll have sort of a special enrollment um, process. They're going to give me a code or something to give you. I've heard from a lot of people already uh, who've sent emails asking to be kept in the loop. Uh, I'll make sure that those of you who sent an email will get an email update as well once everything gets ironed out. But right now it's looking like it's probably going to happen the week of September 10th to 17th. That's a Sunday to Sunday. So if this is something you want to do, you want to join me and other tangentially speaking members of the tangentially speaking community down in Costa Rica, uh, you might want to just pencil in that week, September 10th to 17th. That's when it's going to be happening. You have to be there for the whole week. That's part of the, the setup that they have down there. One of the requirements for them having a medical license that people can't just drop in and out for a day or two. You have to reserve the Sunday to Sunday uh, week and, and plan to spend uh, the whole time there. It's fantastic. I mean, it's not like you're behind a fence. You can go, take off, go to the town, go to the beach, do whatever you want. But as far as booking it, you have to book it for the week and, and you know, intend to, to be down there. Uh, and uh, I'll have more details on that next week uh, when we should have everything ironed out with their enrollment process. But September 10th to 17th looks like it's going to be the week. All right. I'm going to segue into the pre-recorded uh, intro that I, I did last week. I thought I was going to be in Spain this week, which is why I recorded the intro earlier. Um, but then that trip got uh, rescheduled. So I'm back home and I'm, you know, that gave me the opportunity to do this ranting and raving. Sorry for the very long intro. Uh, I hope, I hope nobody's offended by that. And if you are, I hope you'll just, uh, sort of acknowledge that, uh, I, I may be misguided, but I certainly don't intend to hurt anyone. So thanks for listening to the podcast. And uh, now I will segue into the pre-recorded part. Uh, this episode is with Kaj Larson. Uh, if you are a Patreon supporter of this podcast, you may have already seen this episode because I released the video 
that I took uh, of our conversation through Patreon. So if you've if you are a Patreon supporter and you haven't seen it, it's there. Just log on to Patreon and you'll see it there under my posts. Um, yeah, I, I uploaded the, the full video of our conversation. Uh, for everyone else, this is Kaju Larson. He is um, <clears throat> a fascinating dude. He's a, He was a Navy SEAL for five years. He's a war correspondent one of the first um, Western journalists to be in Mogadishu in 10 years, I think. Uh, he was uh, a student at the U.S. Naval Academy. Um, then he transferred to UC Santa Cruz. He grew up in Santa Cruz. Um, fascinating guy. He's, he's reported on the drug war in Mexico, Pakistan, Cambodia, Yemen, Colombia, Haiti. He's been all over the world. He does um, jujitsu and you know he's the kind of guy on paper badass real badass dude and then you meet him and he's just as sweet and kind and friendly as could be so he's a bit of an enigma uh you would never guess if you ran into this guy you know out watching a basketball game in a bar and struck up a conversation you would never guess that this guy, uh, you know, has is as as badass as he is. So, uh, and those are the best. Those are those are the guys you want on your on your team. You know, the the ones who aren't concerned with appearing to be what they are. They just are what they are, and that's enough. All right, I'm going to play you out with a song called "Call to Arms." By Sturgill Simpson. Uh, there was an amazing performance of this song on Saturday Night Live. I highly recommend that you uh, Google that on YouTube and take a look at that performance. I put the video up on my website as well. Uh, I also mounted, uh, mounted, is that the word? I uploaded the, uh, the video of this conversation with Kaj Larson. Folks on Patreon who contributed to the podcast um, got a link to this a couple of weeks ago right after I recorded it, but it's now available for everybody on the website. So if you want to watch us have this conversation, uh, you can uh, check that out at uh, chrisryanphd.com or tangentiallyspeaking.com or thatchrisryan.com. All roads lead to the same website. All right, I'm signing off. This is Sturgill Simpson. Thanks for putting up with my bullshit. I appreciate it. Uh, and I hope to see you in Costa Rica and put up with some of your bullshit. We'll all put up with each other's bullshit. That's what makes the world go round. This is Call to Arms by Sturgill Simpson.
All right, cool. I'm here with Kaj Larson, uh, who, to uh, sort of, I have to admit, I cheated a little. Yeah. Like, I, I knew who you were, I knew some things about you, but on the drive down, I asked Aaron to look you up on Wikipedia. Oh, yeah. What the fuck, motherfucker? What the fuck? You're like the most, uh, you know, the more she read, the more I was like, I don't like this guy. <laughs> What do you mean Harvard? What do you mean water polo? What do you mean open water swimming champion? What do you, I mean like you're the most overachieving I mean leave some success for the rest of us. But like you know? Now I got my own Wikipedia page. I've arrived. <laughs> I've fully arrived. You know, it's it's the, the hallmark of success. Right? <laughs> Having a Wikipedia page? I don't know, man. I have a Wikipedia page, but it's nowhere near as impressive as yours. I, I believe in crowdsourcing information. I, I like the model. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and just before we turn on the mic, you were talking about your mother a little bit. Uh, yeah. Did you grow up in San Francisco? So I didn't. I, I was born and raised in Santa Cruz. Oh, um, right. Actually, like a little enclave of Santa Cruz called Capitola. Capitola oh, yeah. by the sea. Yeah. Uh, both my sister and I were, were born at home in Capitola with uh, either a doula or a midwife. We were born in, in the same room, just, you know, three and a half years apart. Nice. And it was, it was important for my mom that... Uh, we were born at home. Uh, right. She believed in all natural uh, childbirth. Uh, I was by day two. She was bringing me to the beach, which was right down the hill. And so uh, Santa Cruz, I think you've been there. It's yeah. this kind of like idyllic, sleepy little surfer town yeah. in Northern California. Yeah. And that's home. Um, after my parents split, my mom was in New York for a few years. But now she's in San Francisco, and my father still lives in Santa Cruz. How old were you when they split? You know, it's funny, people ask me that, um, and I don't quite remember, because there was like a few years back and forth, but right. I was relatively young, you know, mm. seven years old, eight years old, mm. and my sister was very young, like right. three or something. Right. Yeah. So. So what were your parents like? Who And your mom, you, you described your mom to me earlier as the queen of the mission. She is. Yeah. She, I mean... The queen of the Castro is a whole different concept. Yeah. <laughs> that would have made for, like, it, I, I consider my childhood pretty unique and dynamic. That yeah. would have eclipsed even my childhood. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, it's so, unusual in San Francisco that the queen is a woman. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I feel like I have to be careful how I answer your question because I once, you know, called my mom a hippie on national TV, mm. and it was the <clears> biggest <throat> fight that we've ever had. I mean, we really? were very close. We 
um, despite like some philosophical differences, we, we you know we talk constantly. And we're very involved in each other's lives. There's incredible love, respect, admiration. Um, but she really was a beyond. Direct. I just want the world to see what kind of chair. Yes. Kaj, Kaj put me in here. Yeah. It's about to fall. Yeah. That, that's right. I was right. I was hoping. I'll that try not. <laughs> I was, that we'd get like a big crash <laughs> catastrophe, but like you, you saw my sabotage. <laughs> that's right. I detected the trap. Right. Um, sorry, I interrupted you. Uh, you. Yeah, your mom. So I called her a hippie. Like yeah, it was yeah. a very, it was one of the first pieces that I had ever done on television, and right. like we were talking about my background, right. and I just said, oh, like I said it in shorthand. My parents are hippies. I'm from Santa Cruz. My parents are hippies. Da 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 da. She was livid. She she didn't talk to me for days, and then finally, when when the ice thawed a little bit, we got to speak, and she finally, like, I was like, mom, like you don't understand, like. This is TV, like it has to be like sort of short and sweet and punctilious and all, yeah. all these things. Yeah. And she is, and she wanted me to go back and like re edit it. And I was like, Mom, I don't think you understand how live television works. <laughs> we didn't have a TV. Being a hippie, why would Right, right, you? exactly. Right. <laughs> so, so eventually, what it, her, her, her conceit, her, her, her rift was that. You know, she thinks hippies have been maligned in the media, right? right? I mean, I, I mean, my counter argument was like, yes, true, but like, like you were with my dad at Woodstock, like that's pretty like firmly within the the genre of hippie, yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, but, anyways, ultimately, like the the final moment where we got off over this like huge giant mother son fight was when I was like, well, mom, I just don't know what else to say, you know? And she like slammed. Her fist down on the table, and she's like, "I'm not a hippie, damn it! I'm counterculture." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. from here on out, that's what I will use as shorthand. And and I I can I can uh, definitely understand where she's coming from with that. You know, I because I live in Topanga, as right. you know, and uh, there's a lot of hippie bullshit going on in Topanga, which is not countercultural. You know, there's a lot of holier than thou, following the herd hippie as a group identity it's kind of like you know people who look on the shelf and say well i could be a hippie or i could be this or i could be that i could you know be a banker and it's just another unthinking identity whereas where she's coming from and where i'm coming from and when i use the word hippie correctly is like no they've thought through shit and they've arrived at a position where they're critical of certain elements of mass society and and there's something to be proud of there totally i mean for my mom this is a moral philosophy yeah right i yeah. i think you know one of the worst things probably ever to happen to the hippie movement especially in topanga and like in you know orbits that we sometimes walk in in this town yeah. is like the collusion of like traditional hippie values and new ageism right, right. like right. a exactly. lot of like hippieism <clears throat> gets polluted by the sort of shallow intellectual thinking of like some of this like new agey stuff yeah, right and yeah. it, and that part's a that part's a turnoff but like i think my mom is truly like i will not say hippie because i don't need to relive that <laughs> that decades old fight like but i think she yeah. is truly like counterculture and progressive in right. the sense that like she she cares about like equality she cares about like a social safety and yeah. that she grew up 
um, you know, she was she was born in '48. She's a child of the '60s. Like she grew up at a time where you were questioning all of these notions and and assumptions about how society's organized right. and how government works. Right. And, and, right. Um, yeah. Well, so, and yeah. sex roles, because right? the same sure. the same things happen with feminism, right. right? You know, a lot of a lot of uh, times when when people use the word feminist now, it doesn't mean what it meant for your mom. And so your mom might, I don't want to put words in her mouth, of course, but I imagine she might find some of the modern iterations of feminism to be exactly the opposite of what people from her generation were trying to get at. Yeah, I, I, I think she does. And we've, we've had this conversation a lot. I mean, for, for my mom in terms of like, you know, I don't want to say pioneering feminism because, you know, there was obviously, yeah. you know, Susan B. Anthony's right, right. right to her, but like her sort of, you know, societal genre boundary breaking feminism was my mom drove the very first ice cream truck driven by a woman in new york so one mm. summer vacation like she earned extra money when she was like 17 or whatever by being the ice cream lady a traditional male role right yeah. so yeah. from from the very like sort of inception like her her years were we're, we're spent like going against the grade and, and, you know, fighting the good fight. That's cool. She grew up in New York. Both of my parents are from Brooklyn. Ah, mm-hmm. okay. So, and they, they were born and raised there. Um, my, my mother comes from a sort of like more traditional affluent Long Island Jewish family uh, um, where we had, you know, relatives who were in the Holocaust and uh, like, you know, second generation immigrants all from kind of Eastern Europe, like Russian, European Jews. Right. Uh, and then my father grew up in Red Hook, mm. um, which uh, is now like, you know, like Venice where we're sitting, like mm. is now being like gentrified or whatever. Right. But my father like refuses to believe it. Like I tell him like, oh, Red Hook's cool. Like to him, like, it's never fucking cool. Like to him, it's the slums. Like yeah. he grew up like in the slums, highly immigrant, uh, and that's it. It's like Brooklyn down by the waterfront, and it will never be nice to him. <laughs> well, because cool would be uncool for him. Right. right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a interesting. It lines up with the whole hippie controversy in a way. Totally. Like if you if your dad heard you say like he's from a cool part of Brooklyn, he'd probably you know oh, have a fight it. with him. Yeah. He'd hate it. Yeah. And yeah. what's his background? So he grew up there in, in Red Hook and um, like very much a slum kid. Mm. Um, like, you know, and they like lived in, in tenements and it was, uh, you know, it was a tough, it was tough growing up. On, on my father's side, we don't actually know our sort of like ethnic background mm. um, because both of my dad's parents met in a Catholic orphanage. They were reared and then met, like, my grandfather on my dad's side was in the boys' side, and my grandmother was in the girls' side. They met on a, in a Catholic orphanage. They were both orphans. And so all we have are names on birth certificates. Um, Does Larson come from that? Larson comes from that, yeah. Mm. Um, and so that's my, my grandfather's name, my paternal grandfather's name. Uh, so we assume some kind of, like, Scandinavian background. Right. Um, but uh, one of the names of my great-grandparents who I never knew that we had on the birth certificate was Wilhelmina Johnson. So we suppose, although we've never done like the sort of DNA tracking of it, um, there's like, you know, an outside chance that like maybe Wilhelmina Johnson was African-American, which could make sense Uh with 
um, like sort of like why they would be given up for adoption or taken to an orphanage or whatever. Interracial marriage probably in those days was yeah. not as kosher as it as it is now, right? <laughs> not by a long shot. Right? It's so, still problematic. Yeah. yeah. And, but what's interesting about my dad is <clears throat> he's a slum kid. He went to a place called Boys High, which is this legendary basketball school in New York. And he played basketball with a guy named Connie Hawkins, who's considered the greatest street yard ball player of all time. Really? And uh, yeah, and so my dad kind of used sports and athletics to, to vault himself out of his, his, his slum life. Uh, and then he was in the Marine Corps for a little bit, four years in the Marine Corps, and then... In the mid-60s? Uh, actually, early 60s. So my dad's older. He just yeah. turned 75. We celebrated his 75th birthday right. by riding uh, motorcycles up the PCH together. Nice. I, I rented him a, a 64 Triumph, which is the motorcycle that he uh, he drove across country the year before I was born. So I like how every time you say the word motorcycle, you, you make the uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> acceleration movement. I'm a video journalist. <laughs> yeah. you know, motorcycle. Like, uh, For those of you who are unsure what I mean, motorcycle. I mean, that's why people yeah. need the premium edition, because premium you know, these edition. hand gestures. Exactly. Are, You're missing out if you, right. if you don't have the premium edition. Yeah, what I've started doing with this camera uh, is uh, for people who support the podcast on Patreon, I don't care if they give a dollar a month or $250 a month, whatever. Yeah. They get a, a link to the video component. Excellent. So it's, yeah, because uh, I, don't, I don't do any ads. That's amazing. Yeah, no ads. It's all uh, handcrafted. This is a handcrafted podcast. Yeah, of podcasting. <laughs> yeah, except so, no fucking the, tote bags. The, the pro Forget the tote model. The pro publica, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so your dad was in the Marine Corps. Was he in Vietnam then? He, in the so he was just pre-Vietnam because um, hmm. he's a little older. So he got out of, he got, um, and this is a term that has come back in vogue, uh, he got stop lost for the Cuban Missile Crisis. Hmm. So he's in that, you know, 62... 63 kind right. of era. Right. Um, and so Cuban Missile Crisis happens. He gets extended six months. He's on a ship. And then he gets out. Uh, and then he goes to college. He goes to graduate school. Is that where you met your mom? He met my mom in New York on the Lower East Side at a party, I think. Really? Like, yeah. Very yeah. different kind of background. He was post-military. Yeah. But he was like this, you know. My mom always describes him as this, like, James Dean dashing, you uh -huh. know. So but by the time the draft had really ramped up, you know, he had already served, right? right. So he was in, in graduate school right. and stuff at that point. Right. Um, so he like, he's considered like technically like Vietnam era, but was not like part of the Vietnam conflict right. in that right. sense. But yeah. yeah, it's interesting. And you know, I was, I was actually thinking this morning, speaking of Cuban Missile Crisis, did you know that today is Kennedy's birthday? It's John F. Kennedy's birthday. No, I didn't know. I that. didn't know that either. Yeah, I, I heard that on the news this morning. I was, I was uh, pleasantly intrigued. Huh. And and it's Memorial Day. I know. But Memorial Day is not the same day every year, is it? That's right. Okay. Just right. this today. Right. It falls right. on. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's and Kennedy's had a big influence <clears throat> in, in my life. So. Um, in what sense? Well. In two, I guess, that um, with one stroke of the pen in 1961, President Kennedy commissioned both the SEAL teams and the Peace Corps, mm. which is fascinating if you think about... I didn't know that. Was these it, two disparate... Was the same yes. presidential it was the same act, act or whatever? Exactly. Yeah. And if you think about like 
huh. these two disparate elements of national power yeah with sort of like they're different implements but in in some ways they you know they serve the same purpose of extending u.s policy overseas yeah um it's it, it's quite fascinating i've always like romanticized joining the peace corps mm, just to, like, after the seal teams to, to, to complete the spectrum yeah, yeah. yeah. and then i went to the um you know after my active duty service I, I went to the Kennedy School of Government right. at Harvard for right. my master's. Right. Um, and so his his spirit and DNA is kind of like infused throughout the, yeah. the school. So, yeah. Wow. All right. Well, here's to Kennedy. Yeah. Interesting cat. I mean, God, how far we've come, huh? Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, um, even in his service time, you know, uh, he, yeah, how far we've come. Like, look, these days we're like, you know, waxing nostalgic for George W. Bush, right? Like Kennedy, like Camelot. Like we're so we're so goddamn far from Camelot these yeah. days, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. I I don't I don't know where your your politics lie. I mean, hanging out with you, it seems like you know, your politics and mine would probably correspond pretty well, but uh you know, I'm I'm kind of anti-military, uh, politically speaking, and yeah. obviously you're not. So I don't know how we, I mean, I, I feel, as far as the military goes, I feel like, I was hanging out with a guy last night, a, a friend who we were talking about all this stuff. He was in um, a special recon unit. I forget what it was called, but it's, it was sort of like a SEAL, uh, similar to the SEALs, like they go behind enemy lines and, you know, live for four days and be able to radio in positions for strikes and all this kind of stuff. You, you probably know the unit. Um, I forget what it's called. He told me the whole history and everything. But anyway, we were talking about, um, you know, he went into the military sort of just because he didn't know what else to do and he decided to do it. And then once he was in, it was like, oh shit, I've made a terrible mistake, but I'm in, I might as well really go for it and yeah. do something that's going to be fun and wild and challenging. And he's a natural athlete and all right. this. Um, so it, it's just interesting to... I, I did a couple of years ago around Memorial Day, I did a series of podcasts with vets. Um, and they're all young guys. These are guys who came back from Iraq and Afghanistan talking about their experiences. And I, I've got incredible sympathy and, and compassion and admiration for, for people who've been in the military, but not because I think that anything about what they were doing was the right thing to be doing. Yeah, or noble or... Yeah, or I mean, that fallen right, right? heroes and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't... I just feel like these poor guys got screwed. Yeah, I mean, and in, in many cases, they did. I mean, <laughs> this is funny. Like, in some ways... Like, this is the debate of my childhood between my mother. Well, and that's my what I'm thinking. Like, how does a guy, you know, and you're close to your mom, obviously. Yeah. I can just see the way you talk about her. It's. Yeah, and she is. You're not doing anything to hurt her. True pacifist. Yeah. Like, true commitment. Yeah. She, you know, in the sort of Gandhi notion of nonviolence, the Mahatma notion of nonviolence is what she believes and practices. Right. Like, to her credit. Um, we what we learned after many years of, of of loving discussion. She even wrote like a short novella about this hmm. called Friendly Fire, like a pacifist mother who has a son right. who goes to the Naval Academy. Right. right? Oh, like, you went to the Naval Academy. I did. Too. I did. So that decision Dude. was made at seventeen, right? And this uh -huh. the sort of glib version is that like, look, 
I grew up a hippie kid in Santa Cruz, right? Like, right. I couldn't rebel by like smoking pot or right. doing drugs, right? right? Like, you right. know, you know, my mom smoked enough pot for the whole family, right? <laughs> like, uh, so like I rebel by joining the service, but it, it, it's actually, I, I, I think of it as much more thoughtful and much more nuanced than that. When, it, when what it boils down to it at some level is that uh, I do believe that sometimes force is required to do good in the world. Mm. And I could give you a couple like historical examples, you know, um, the sort of like right off the, the tip of my tongue. And, and some of these beliefs are <clears throat> beliefs that like I held prior to being this sort of tip of the spear in well, foreign you, policy. You have family that were, you mentioned earlier, you have family who were in concentration camps. Yep. So there's a direct line to what I think of as the last war that made sense. Yes. You know, Ooh. and I agree. If if I were live in the early 40s, I think That's I right. would join up That's for right. that. Yeah. And, and and you say the last war, and you're speaking on that made sense domestically, right? When I was five years old, my mom and my dad adopted a Cambodian family straight out of the Kawidong refugee camp on the Thai-Cambodia border. These are people who had like basically run through the jungle avoiding the Khmer Rouge, like yeah. suffered tremendously and they lived with us for years. Really? So I had like a little Cambodian In brother. Santa Cruz. In Santa Cruz at that, that little house, yeah. Capitola by the sea. Wow. Um, and so not only did I have like, you know, this like sort of, you know, kind of naive at that time understanding of the Holocaust, but like yeah. then you layer on top of it, the Cambodian genocide, right. right? And so I, and one of like these questions that when you're, when you're young and, and you, you don't really know how to answer, not that I know how to answer it that much better now, but I have a couple decades of experience to put against it is like, I just don't understand why nobody fought back. Like, why did, why didn't anybody do something in the face of all this injustice? Right. And I, I think that was a, a, a pulsing question for me. And, and I had this desire to create impact in the world. And I had seen um, through, you know, my parents sort of humanitarian instincts through my own hmm. sort of interaction with this, that there are places where force can actually do good. And, uh, you know, for example, uh, if you, if you talk to Bill Clinton about what he really considers the tragedy of his presidency, like what keeps him up at night, right? Rwanda. It's, it's Rwanda. Yeah. It's the genocide in Rwanda. 800,000 people murdered, mostly by machete, within like three months, right? Um, and uh, what was the, the catalyst for that uh, was mostly radio, right? So the, the Hutu power, there's this, this great book by uh, Philip Gorovich, have you read this? Called, We Regret to Inform You, But Tomorrow You Will oh, Be Killed With Your Families. Yeah, yeah, right? I've, I've heard of that. It's really, really extraordinary. Yeah. And uh, the... And what you realize is that these people were whipped into a murderous genocidal frenzy via radio, essentially. So you could have literally taken a SEAL team and gone in there and surgically like taken out like the radio stations, right? Which is a mission that we have done elsewhere around the world. Um, and you kind of, I'm not sure that you would have like 100% prevented like every death in the Rwandan genocide, but you would have injected like cooling rods in it mm. that would have prevented it from cooking off. Hmm. Um, so th those are instances. So th those are the notions that I held going into the SEAL teams. Um, and then, but candidly, like a lot of that stuff is like, you know, young man's bravado. Yeah. Well, and also, see, I, I follow you. I agree with you. I'm, I'm sort of a 99% pacifist, but 
I've seen situations where, and, and I can't say if, you know, if somebody attacked my wife or child or a, a vulnerable friend that I wouldn't react with violence. I, I think I would. I think that's a natural reaction and, and it's a reaction I respect, honestly. You know, if it's very clear that that's definitely the guy who did it and it doesn't get into, you know, a month later and, you know, whatever. But um, the problem is the way violence is controlled by the state now, in order to put yourself in a position where you could save someone, you have to first sacrifice all your autonomy. Oh. And you just have to follow orders. And that puts you then in a position where this, and I don't mean this as any way an insult, but I see a lot of military people, when I see like those attack dogs, that they used on the black civil rights protesters in the South or the Nazis were using to, you know, herd the Jews into the camps. I look at, and they're like, they're good dogs. Those are good dogs. They're just doing what they're trained yeah. to do. They're conditioned. But if you hung out with one of those dogs, it would be licking your hand and the sweetest dog in the world, right? And I sort of see the military that way. It's like, those are good people and they're trained to do some really horrible shit. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, disagree with you for a second you know part of what happens is that you and my own life trajectory um sort of follows this maturation part of what happens is like you go in with all these idealistic notions of why you should serve right, right? Mm -hmm. um but and and i think uh you know it's always it's always funny to be i don't want to say critical let's say analytical of the military because yeah. this is not criticism right? right like i actually think like I believe in that mantra, dissent can be the highest form of patriotism, right? Yeah. Um, because we, you know, we should be conducting ourselves in a moral, uh, in a moral manner. But you go in with all of these, all of these notions of why you should serve and why it's important to serve. Um, and, and some of those remain true throughout the course of your service. Um, but then what you also find is that, and what I found overseas is that sometimes I became the instrument, the attack dog in your metaphor, of poor foreign policy, right? right? Of misguided foreign policy, of, of policy that I didn't necessarily agree with. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's a massive leap forward, but like when I got off active duty, it's why I went to the Harvard Kennedy School of Government hmm. because I wanted to be able, based on my you know, my credibility as a combat veteran, as a, yeah. as a Navy SEAL, to have a seat at the table of places that were making those kind of decisions. Right. Um, right. So I, I still hold, I still believe that like sometimes force is required for good. I'm much more on the spectrum now of like in very limited, precise manners because yeah. in some ways like the mafia understood this much better than the entire U.S. <clears throat> military. But I wouldn't even say the military then the entire U.S. policymaking apparatus um, is the unintended consequences of killing. Like, yeah. More often than not, violence begets violence, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had amazing mentors uh, in the service. Part of the advantage of being in the special operations community is you do have access to some of the best and brightest of the military. So, you know, the counterinsurgency doctrine developed by General Petraeus, you know, Stan McChrystal in Afghanistan. Like, uh, these guys, they were bumping up against this asymptotic limit of like, like, look, we can't shoot our way out of this problem. Yeah. I think that's a Stan McChrystal quote, right? Mm. Like, we cannot shoot our way out of this problem. That's why all this bullshit, like, 
drain the swamp like no yeah. you know um so yeah i don't i don't know where that got us but it, it got me to harvard uh, to think well, it, deeply about it, these issues yeah and it got you to use the phrase bumping up against asymptotic limits which yeah. is the <laughs> first time i've ever heard those words put together <laughs> nicely done yeah. Yeah. i think by definition you can't bump up against an asymptote yeah, yeah. right isn't that what it is it's a great i love that concept yeah. something where you're always getting closer but you never arrive yeah like the yeah. arrow halfway oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. you always divide yeah, right, it in half right. you never get to nothing exactly. yeah yeah exactly. um yeah, I, I imagine it must be. Well, you know who Sebastian Junger is, of right? Course, yeah. yeah, you yeah. probably met him. I don't know. I have, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so you know him. his his thing where he was in Afghanistan with the, in the Korangal Valley. Yep. I saw him on an interview, uh, and and I forget. Maybe it was Bill Maher. I forget who it was. But anyway, the, the question was, why do these guys do that? Why why do they put up with that? Why do they, you know, stick it out and you know, because these guys don't know anything about geopolitical considerations, oil pipelines, and who controls the Straits yeah. of Hormuz and whatever. They're just, you know, they're just grunts. And uh, Junger said, well, they do it for love. And that's when I thought of those dogs. Right. It's like they do it because... The guy next to you. Yeah. It's the guy next you're, to you. You're watching your buddy's back. He's oh. watching your back. And that's something that, you know, as an anthropologist, something I think about a lot, right? Yeah. That That's really deep in us. You know, we're out here together in the world. We survive because we take care of each other. Yeah. And so it breaks my heart to see that instinctive love that we feel as, as animals being co-opted and redirected as a way to, you know, defend the rights of corporations and, you know, the stuff. I mean, these guys to serve, use the phrase to serve earlier, I often think like they think they go into it thinking they're serving their country and it, but they're not serving their country. They're serving oil companies. They're serving banks. They're serving, you know, whatever shady interests are directing this kind of stuff. And then their country abandons them. You know, it's a three hour or three year wait list to get mental health coverage for, you know, in the VA and all this crazy shit. And it just happens generation after generation. Yeah, the, the best example of this kind of like awakening of consciousness that, that I've ever read is uh, in the, the, the Pat Tillman book um, that's written by uh, the guy who wrote Into Thin Air, Krakauer. Oh, Have you read yeah, this? I haven't, no. It's called, uh, I always mess up this title. It's either called Where Men Win Glory or Where Men Win Honor, one mm. of the two. But essentially, Pat Tillman was this like, don't give a fuck independent thinker. He was yeah. a ranger, which is yeah. in the special operations community, right. not special forces, but within the special operations community. Mm. And uh, he got to Iraq and he's like, this is utter bullshit. Yeah. Like, what am I doing right. here? You know? Um, so, so that is true. Um, and it is also true that that, that happens. Uh, you know, I still maintain um, that there is... I don't know why I'm debating it, <laughs> but I still maintain there's a place for good. I was thinking as you were talking just about like, you know, like what's happening with ISIS right now. You know, yeah. if like they said like, hey, Kaj, like we need you. We're like, we're short men to fight ISIS, you know, um, <clears throat> like let's, let's, let's not even take ISIS. Forget that. Like uh, I just got back. I spent three months in northern Nigeria covering mm. the war against Boko Haram. Right. right? Boko Haram is this nefarious terrorist organization most famous on the international stage for kidnapping these 300 schoolgirls mm -hmm. out of Chibok, right 
And all of the same stuff that you just said about like, if you really like dig deep into it, the genesis of Boko Haram, like Boko Haram actually started off from like a pretty, like it started off as in a mosque in um, in Maduguri, which is the capital city of, of Borno State in northern Nigeria. It's It started in a mosque there about uh, guys who were kind of like protesting this like oppressive local government and mm. wanted like more equal sharing rights and like and then it like kind of mushroomed into this like insurgency so like like the the roots of boko haram like are not that distinct from like you know guys fighting against like the big oil interests of the nigerian state and like right. their fair share of resources it has right. all of like or the american the, revolution yeah yeah it has yeah. all of these like there's legitimacy yeah. in like all of those critiques it's parallel to everything you're saying like about like you know, whatever, the reason people fight for corporation, like you're not fighting for these like idealistic notions or whatever. There's also like a religious and a fundamentalist component. But my point is, is that despite the fact that all of those like geopolitical or in this case, local political overlays exist, that they're not like, that they're not, the army's not fighting Boko Haram for the reasons they think. I mean, in these days, like, the reason anybody's basically fighting is because the state needs to control a monopoly on violence, right? right? Like that is right. almost the literal function of the state these days, right? Um, is that is that violent can't violence can't be outsourced at a lower level? But what? So despite all of that stuff, which is totally true, like if you asked me to go, like you know, grab an M4 and like go on a direct action raid against Boko Haram, like. I'd do it in a second, right? Because like these, like these motherfuckers are evil. Like mm. I have seen it, boots on the ground, what they do, right? And if you were willing to like slaughter a teenage girl, like cut her belly um, open, if you're willing to kidnap schoolgirls, if you're willing to like behead people, right? Like I don't really have a qualm like putting like two to the chest and one to the head. Like it doesn't violate my moral code, so right. that's where I end up on. Yeah, and I agree with that, but but I think it's interesting how so many of these these movements, as you suggested, start out as uh, an impulse toward justice, right? They start out as a rebellion against yeah. injustice. Yes. Whether it's the Viet Cong, you yeah. know, uh, Ho Chi yes. Minh was a great admirer right. of Kennedy, actually, right. you know. Uh, Fidel Castro was a great admirer of Kennedy right. and and read Gandhi and you know right. Martin Luther or not, I guess it's pre Martin Luther King uh, Thoreau, you know uh, civil disobedience right, yeah. um, so it, it's really yeah it's a complicated it's a complicated thing, I, yeah I don't know, anyway let, let's, let's I don't either <laughs> yeah that's I don't either the uh, I will I will say like I don't know if we'll ever put a, a button on it uh, I will say like that these are the most important questions mm-hmm. in the world, right? Like as, as a journalist, to some degree, my job is is to ask questions. And like right. the reason that I focus on <clears throat> conflict zones, the reason that I focus on national security is like to ask these kind of like fundamental questions, you know? And this yeah. is not an academic exercise for me, right? Like I right. literally no, was the vital. first. Yeah, no, no, right. I was the first person to interview a Boko Haram 
commander, the guy who, one of the guys who was holding a component of the Chiba girls. It was mm. like, you know, in a, like a safe house in, in northern Nigeria. And right. there, we, there was like all this like crazy security procedures on their part. And So uh, where do you come down on the question of, of Islam? Because a lot of the work you've been doing sounds like you've been in areas you know, where Islam is a overriding sort of prism for looking at the world. Yeah. And do you see Islam as uh, a, a sort of... Um, a thought structure that is inherently uh, biased toward abuse and evil and all that? Or do you sort of see it as a reaction to injustice, U.S. foreign policy, for example? Yeah, it, super interesting question. Like, I will say I don't know enough, like, from a theological perspective mm, right. to know if, like, the the structure and the diction of the Quran, especially, you know, since like a non-translated version of the Quran, like I, I don't know enough to know if like because of the nature of it, it somehow like pushes towards like a more fundamentalist hmm. ideology. Like what I would say is that like I think fundamentalism across the board is the threat, right. not necessarily right. like Islam, right? And I would cite as like empirical evidence like the 99% of nonviolent Muslims, right? right? Like I did operations in Indonesia, largest Muslim country in the world, 200 million Muslims, like, yeah. you know, in broad strokes, like one of like the most peaceful places, certainly with their history of violence, but like, you know, person to person, like soft, gentle, yeah. in incredible Muslims, right? Those so, are the ones you watch out for. Yeah, that is true. That is true. <laughs> so no, like, look, I don't have like a particular bug against Islam. Like what I see is that in dark places, dark corners of the earth, wherever there is a power vacuum, whenever there's lack of education, whenever there's inequality um, and fundamentalist ideology like rushes in yeah. to fill that void, nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah. And yet no more true than in you know northern Nigeria where there's zero educational system, so everybody is educated in the madrasas, right? Like right. The, to me, like that's the problem. Like the not Islam itself, like it's the lack of governance, like the lack of opportunity. Um, yeah, so that's that's where I fall on Islam. Yes, I've spent a decade, you know, fighting uh, in places, right, in, in Muslim areas of the world. And then I spent another decade covering war and conflict in many of those places mm. in the world as well. Um, and so like, yeah, I've, there, I have a, a high rate of exposure, um, but I don't, I don't think that there's, anything particular to the ideology of Islam. Um, there's certainly something particular to the fundamentalist interpretation, but you know, I had kind of an interesting epiphany when I was in, um, when I was riding around with the Hizbah uh, in, in Northern Nigeria. So I did a big documentary mm last year in, in Nigeria about Boko Haram. Was this Haram. for Vice? For Vice, mm -hmm. yeah. And so that's why I spent so much time and why, mm -hmm. why it's top of mind and why I traveled so much around the country. And it became, I had a modicum, I, it was successful mostly because they had banned journalists from covering the war in Northern Nigeria. They just didn't allow them to go. So, and I was able to sneak in. So even for Nigerians, they had never seen what their own war had looked like. So 
accidentally I became like, you know, nobody knows who I am here, right? Unless you watch Vice religiously on Friday nights, right? right. Uh, but in, in Nigeria, I had like 15 minutes of fame because they're mm. like, you know, who's this crazy white boy like out there so on the front So how'd you sneak lines? in? Can you talk about that? Yeah, I, I can. Um, so from the old days, um, from my not so past life um, yeah. in uniform, I knew a bunch of guys who were, um, well, the modern PC version of the terminology are, are PMCs, private military contractors. Blackwater guys? Uh, no, like these these are the the, the grandfather the forefathers of Blackwater, yeah. right? These are mercenaries, right. right? There's a long tradition of using mercenaries on the African continent. Rolling the headless Thompson gun. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Sure. So actually some of the same guys who had been contracted to uh, you know the movie Blood Diamond, yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, yeah. That's loosely based on these guys from a group called Executive Outcomes, mm. right? And these guys were paid uh, by the government of Sierra Leone in diamonds to fight the war in Sierra Leone, right? right? And like, and so um, when Nigeria rolled around, the president uh, at the time who was trying to get reelected, good luck, Jonathan, needed a to wipe out the Boko Haram problem because mm. he had ignored it and let it fester right. for years and it became an election issue. So he basically just opened the old African playbook, hired a lot of the same dudes who had fought. And I'm like, this story hasn't really been told. A lot of these same dudes who had fought in this dirty war, this blood diamond war in Africa, and he just paid them, you know, $80 million to win the war against Boko Haram for them. Which makes sense for him because, as opposed to funding his own military properly. Well, the problem would happen. Coup is, danger, maybe. No, that would. Well, your your instincts are are right on, but like, let me let me put it into structure for you. Mm. The Nigerian military, which used to be more competent, had suffered from deliberate neglect mm -hmm. over the last several years, and had been allowed to atrophy mm. because of fear of a coup. Like in Africa, like one of the things you learn when you become a head of state is that you always have a very like cantankerous relationship with the military because you live under like the, the fear of a coup, yeah, right? And yeah. so you've actually seen this even in, even in um, countries that have embraced like democratic rule and are considered very stable, mm. right? Like you see this sort of like suspicion of the military between the head of state. Um, yeah. So, and look, I'm broadly generalizing a, yeah. a, around a broad continent, but there's, there's a lot of truth to it. So yeah. the Nigerian military basically sucked, right? And so he had to hire these mercenaries to come like smash Boko Haram. Right. I knew those dudes from, from, the, from the old days in right. uniform and they called me up and they said like, hey, we're doing this thing. And, uh, and I said, well, I'd like to come. And so I did. Mm. And once I got there, everybody just assumed I was one of them. They're right. like, oh, well, he's with our, our white South African friends. So these were 80 mercenaries from South Africa mm. who were living and fighting alongside the Nigerians. And then because I had been given the hominis dominus, which um, you can see on the video, but obviously not <laughs> on the audio, making the motion. Um, then I was able to leapfrog all the way around the front lines and embed myself right. with different Nigerian units and and go on different assaults with mm. the Nigerian. Army. Were you armed? No, 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 no. As a journalist, that's you right. know, 
Um, okay. uh, although, goddamn, I want it to be sometimes. You know, like I mean, it was look, it was dangerous. The very first op that I went on, the very first operation I went on, two of the South African mercenaries got killed when a Nigerian, like we were all in a, a vehicle convoy, and uh, a Nigerian tank like opened up. It was like a friendly fire version by accident. Like the whole, it was like like. The hard part was like, yes, I'm like a journalist, like riding in the car, but like, I'm also a Navy SEAL officer and I know like a little bit about like combat mission planning and I saw none of it going down and I could see like just the, like the series of fuck ups happening. Mm. And so we were supposed to do a day link up. It was a night link up. There was no deconfliction. The end result was that a Nigerian T-72 tank opened fire on the convoy, killed two of the, the mercenaries, the South African white guys. Or fucking body parts everywhere. Like, it was insane. So, I mean, you know, not, what the not to beat the war drum yeah. like, too much, but like, yeah. war is messy and bloody. Yeah. And, you know, as, and you've seen a lot of that kind of stuff, I imagine. I've seen a years. decent you've amount, seen a lot of you know, both. Die and. I have. Is that something that you're able to get used to? Or is, is every time like the first time? You know, know that I've ever actually thought super deeply about it I don't think it is something you get used to or you should get used to like you I think you have to be careful to like grow too thick a skin and become anesthetized to it I mean this is part of like like part of the challenge in being I, I don't know how to extrapolate this to other domains of life although I bet it's possible Part of the challenge of being, you know, in those situations is like you don't want to lose your humanity, right? right? And this is, I think, why you also have like reintegration problems with veterans and and all that stuff. Like, no, I think like in any arduous situation, like the real challenge is, is to maintain your humanity and not lose your sense of self, like to the best degree possible. So you don't want to become too callous about dead bodies, right? You have to like protect yourself right you can't like you know you can't lose your shit like over it right right? especially you know you're an officer you're in charge of other people you're in charge of you know if there's uh, something like that's going on you want to minimize the damage so you need to think clearly you need to be cool right but then later do you go through it emotionally is it something you just set aside for now a little bit i mean one of the interesting things about and now we're sort of like teetering into the territory of of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder is that you know two people can be side by side and they can have the identical combat experiences and have like vastly different outcomes right one guy's totally fine and one guy's totally fucked up right I, I think I'm more in the former category where I think I've actually grown from my combat experiences it's given me perspective on life. It's mm-hmm. made me, it's made me like care more deeply and appreciate like every, like the cup of tea that we're having, mm-hmm. right? I, not like, in, I don't want to like overstate it. Like I had some profound epiphany, right. but it like, for me, combat has brought the rest of life more into focus, oh. right? And I think for some other people, it has the opposite effect. Right. It blurs it out. Right. Do you have any idea what the structural difference in personality is that causes that? There's, uh, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of nascent research in this domain, oh. and the idea of like what creates resiliency, 
is it is it you probably have some thoughts on this like mm-hmm. is it is it nature versus nurture the old classic argument like is it learned behavior can it be coached some of the most recent data is showing that you can if you have some degree of pre-exposure therapy mm. or pre-exposure to a traumatic event right it can help insulate you and build resiliency so very trendy in the military right now although i would say as a scientist you would be reticent to draw real conclusions from it is that by putting people through you know virtual reality simulations and stuff yeah. like that um, well i was gonna that was my next question i was yeah. gonna ask what you think about these violent shoot 'em up video games that a lot yeah. of kids are growing up with now I don't know that I've ever actually played a video game in my life, yeah. so I might be the worst person yeah. to comment on it. What I will say is that I always found it surreal when I was in Afghanistan, and I'd like walk back into the base. Like, <clears throat> excuse me. The the other interesting thing is, you know, half those people like who've deployed overseas, like they don't leave the wire, mm. right? Like they never get off the base. Right. That's not to say that it's not traumatic, like. Mortars are scary, like all that stuff. Right. But like, right. it is categorically different than what the men in my community are doing, right? right? Which is like going right. out and kicking doors, right? right? Um, but I always found it funny, like when you would come back from outside the wire and you'd come onto base and you'd like walk, usually like the special operations community, we have like our own little, like a base within a base, like a little compound. Mm-hmm. But often you interact with the conventional forces in many different ways. And SEALs do so many things these days that like it's it's hard to even generalize right like seals train conventional forces they train special operations force they do all this stuff but in general i've had this experience where i've come back inside the wire and i'm like walking through like the chow hall and then into the recreation center because they build these like little american little pockets of america on these bases overseas burger king and all this shit yeah and like that's what we're here to defend boys that's what we're doing and so I, I would like literally see guys playing these like shoot 'em up right. video games. Yeah. Like I don't even know what they're called. Not yeah. Mortal Kombat. That just dated me from like the nineties or whatever. But yeah. whatever these like these shooter up echelon four games yeah. or are or yeah. whatever, I'd be like, boys, you know you could just walk right outside and get the real thing if you want to yeah. like do it. It always probably, seemed crazy. It's probably to called me. Seal Team Six or something at this point. I'm you sure, know, I'm, I'm sure. sure it is. Yeah. Yeah. Unless we IP'd that somehow. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like everything in yeah. Hollywood is called SEAL Team 6 these days. Yeah, the whole SEAL thing has really taken off since, I guess, since uh, Osama bin Laden, you know. It's it's crazy. Um, I think it started maybe a touch before that. There's there's an interesting story here that's beyond SEAL fame that is very underreported and very undertold. But the, 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 the prologue is that when I joined the SEAL teams, like, SEAL teams were basically like a shoot, dive, jump club, right? If you were going to like really joke about it, hmm. you know, and nobody like, I didn't even know what SEALs were, right? Hmm. When I went to the Naval Academy, like I never even heard of SEALs. Like I watched Top Gun. I wanted to fly, right? <laughs> I, everybody knew Delta Force because Chuck Norris hmm. had made a movie, hmm. right? But nobody knew what SEALs were. September 11th happens. I'm in SEAL training, first phase of SEAL training on September 11th. And then... Um, we spend basically like the next decade at war, like real, like serious, like high operational tempo war. And what happened with SEALs becoming so prominent in the media is we basically, I I think bin Laden was the, was the sort of apex of that trend as opposed 
to the genesis of that trend. What, what had happened is we had had um, a series of high profile operations and they all started to go towards the SEAL teams and they became public, right? right. So you had, you know, on Easter Day, the Captain Phillips. Um, oh, the rescue. Yeah. Right, which they made a movie out of, right? Somalia. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tom and, Hanks. Exactly, right? And so yeah. then you had the, the Jessica Lynch rescue in Iraq, right? <laughs> so you had, you had these kind of mm. like series of, of, of incidents that were all like additive. So mm. interestingly enough, the interesting story mm. is that they weren't just additive to the like to the brand or the public perception of seals but internally politically like mm. uh, you know it, at some point there's basically two units in the world that do these like highest tier one like national level missions there's only two there's you know the army um special forces delta force popularized by chuck norris and then there's us right and at some point the the president the sitting president has to decide on one of these high profile missions like do i go with the the green guys or the blue guys right? and, you, and you basically have the same training and capabilities yeah well i mean i could like like bore you to tears um <clears throat> with like the like minute granular tactical differences about like how we clear a room differently mm. and like you know and what we call like ttps tactics, techniques, and procedures. Mm -hmm. But like, essentially, like, these days in the special forces community, like, we all do the same shit. Right. We all jump, we all dive, we all shoot. Right. We all do CQC, which is close quarters combat, right? And this is true, both, you know, between Army Special Forces and, and Naval Special Warfare, my community, but it's also true internationally, right? Because mm -hmm. some of our international partners have these extraordinary special operations units. Yeah. I imagine the Israelis are probably pretty, quite good. Yeah. Those are the Shiatek guys, quite right. good. Yeah, right. different specialties. Some guys are a little better <clears throat> at certain things. The Germans have this unit called the Kampfschwimmers, the combat swimmers. We learned a lot of our combat diving techniques from them. Mm. Um, so we all share operational knowledge and, right. and all of this stuff. Right. But but yeah, everybody does the same shit. So you know, you're you're President Obama or or President, you know. Bush second, Bush two, President George W. Bush, you gotta like. There's this big mission. You deem it worth the risk. Like you gotta like give your blessing. People will recommend to you. Like we think the seals should do this because they're better positioned or whatever. But mm -hmm. um, but ultimately, like they gotta make a choice. And what happened is that because of a unique relationship with with the agency, and this goes back to Rumsfeld gutting the operational kinetic capabilities of the CIA hmm. in the early 2000s, a strong bond was formed between intelligence officers in Iraq and SEAL units, SEAL platoons deployed there. Hmm. And they did a bunch of high profile missions together. And that added up to that when it came down to time for the bin Laden mission, it was kind of a no brainer hmm. for the president because he like, he had already felt comfortable. He right. felt comfortable with the JSOC commander. Right. And they had had this track record of success Integrating together. together. Yeah. Well, you know, here's a question I've wanted to ask someone for a long time, and maybe you can't answer it, yeah. so we'll just let it go if you can't. But after that Bin Laden raid happened, uh, maybe three, four months after, that was SEAL Team 6, was yes. it? Right. Okay. That's what they call it. Right. So then I read sort of a... I don't think it was front page. I think it was, you know, page two or three or whatever, uh, that most of the guys who had been on that raid into Pakistan 
their helicopter was shot down in Afghanistan. Oh, yeah, the Extortion 17. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. August, I believe it was August 11th. I should clarify, by the way, it's been publicly reported that it was SEAL Team 6, which is not a term that we use among our community, but it has been publicly reported that they were the ones who did the Bin Laden raid. Just right. to okay. keep myself good. within safe parameters. Good, good. Keep yeah. yourself there. Because yeah, yeah. that, that gets to what I, was, yeah. what I was thinking. When I saw that, I thought how strange it is that, that those guys would all be together You'd think that at least half of them would be like, okay, you know, you guys are done, go home, enjoy your, the rest of your life. You yeah. know, you guys did this really high yeah. risk thing. The others would be dispersed into other units, doing other stuff. How tragic, my first thought was, oh, it's so tragic, all these guys are together and, and you know, a lot of them died there. And then I thought, wait a minute, this is giving cover to these guys yeah. so that Islamic militants aren't looking for them the yeah. rest of their lives. So it's so convenient that all these guys are no longer, they're all dead now. Look, they all died. Fuck, I mean, I, <clears throat> honestly, I wish that was the case. Really? Right? Yeah, my buddy, my buddy John Tummelson was on that bird. Like I had, I had like oh, a fuck. bunch of friends That's on that bird. Bad. So like, I, I wish that was the case. And I, I have heard many of, there's like sort of conspiracy theories associated with that. And like, um, but basically, without like delving too much into like the operational sure. stuff like it, you can read my um what is his pseudonym that he wrote the book under it's about to say his real name no, like don't do we're it. about to have an explosive podcast here. Well, we can edit anything yeah okay yeah yeah i think the pseudonym that he wrote the book under was mark owen he wrote a book called no easy day he's one of the guys that shot bin laden mm. friend of mine um, and <clears throat> although somewhat a pariah in our community now for, for writing wrote a the book, book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. the government ended up taking a bunch of money back, but uh, someone who, despite all of that, I, I consider like an excellent operator and, and a true friend, um, he details you know much of this in his book about mm. um, the guys from the Bin Laden raid being kind of like an all-star grab bag right. of piecemeal. So it wasn't even like one specific unit right. necessarily. Okay. Um, and then the extortion 17 tragedy with those guys, like it, if, if you're inside, it makes sense operationally. It's not surprising. Oh, like, okay. I mean, the real lesson from there is not that there's a conspiracy, but that there is just like a small cabal of us really of guys who do what we do i think there's less <clears throat> than ten thousand seals lifetime i'm talking like real deal trigger pullers so how many now like you know i don't know what the actual action? operational size is but at any given time there is like you know like not more than two thousand operational seals mm. I mean, much less actually right. it's right. it's it's very few right one of the tenants in our community is that you can't mass-produced special forces, right? Almost inherently hmm. by definition. Just because right? it's so hard to, to be qualified in all those different realms? Yes, yeah, and even in terms of the selection process, it seems like no matter how big we open up the funnel at the top, we only get like a certain finite number right. true. But it is also true from an organizational structure perspective, like the second, like think about a startup company that goes from 10 people to 1,000 people, like you inherently lose some of that like specialness and like oh, what we need as a community is like flexibility, adaptability, mobility, right. right? Those things that actually like are hurt by scale. 
Right. Every, everybody else in the world is thinking scale. We're thinking the opposite, right? Because we have to be light, nimble, fast, adaptable, flexible, uh, quick. With, with, and, and pretty much all those qualities you just named are innately uh, against the mindset of just shut up and do what you're told. Yes. I mean, I imagine your typical SEAL is an independent thinker, a smart, you know, contextual understanding, which yeah. is hard for a yeah. soldier, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is one why it's the only domain of the military that I could exist in, right? Mm. Because they actually, to a, a much larger degree, do foster independent thinking because responsibility is delegated, like, to such a low level, right? Mm. Like, you know... And there's this concept of like the strategic private or whatever, which means that like a guy overseas with a gun can make a decision to pull a trigger that has like strategic global level implications, right? right. And so SEALs, because of the nature of positions that they are put in, like that's even more likely right. that they would be in that situation. So yeah. they have to be able to sort of think independently, um, but then simultaneously operate within, you know, a team structure because yeah. like, you know, we are a combat multiplier and, and the sum is greater than the whole of its parts. And uh, actually the guy who put it best to me most recently is, uh, is a, a guy who just got out of the SEAL teams and he's now trying to be an entrepreneur and he's, he's starting a business that I'm probably going to butcher it, but I think it's called like lone wolf. Right. And he says like the wolf is the perfect spirit animal for SEALs. I mean, Probably a seal is the perfect spirit animal for seals, but he says the lone wolf metaphorically because like you can operate solo, but like you hunt better in packs. Right. So that's kind of the mentality. Yeah. You have to be strong as an individual, but even stronger as a team. So some football coach, I, I, this is a quote I, I repeat a lot. Uh, I should look up and figure out who it was actually, but I read an interview with this football coach and the question was, what's it take to be a great coach? And he said, you have to be smart enough to understand the game, but not smart enough to realize how little it all matters. Yeah. That uh, maybe resonates deep, maybe deeper than it should. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can apply it to anything. Yeah. But I, when I think about, you know, these elite units in the military, there, there is this inherent conflict between being a smart, independent thinker who's, in, in the case of the SEALs, you're sending them into situations that you can't really anticipate what they're going to encounter. That's the whole point of sending them, right? right. If you knew what it was going to be, you'd send right. in infantry or whatever. Right. But the SEALs are the guys you send in, like, we don't know what you're going to find, but deal with it, you know? And so you need this independent thinking, and yet uh, in the military, you're trying to control what everyone does. You know, it's very hierarchical and all that. It's very, it's a very interesting well, place I to mean, be. Well, I mean, look, we're probably well past the point of making this too seal centric, but like, one <laughs> yeah. thing that I will, I think so, I will say is that the seal teams are much more flat in terms of culture huh. than they are like a sort of conventional hierarchical structure. Right. Seal training is the. Um, well, because you're already at a very high level right. just to be a SEAL. Well, and even things like SEAL training is the only U.S. military training in the world where, or U.S. military training where both officers and enlisted go through the identical training. There's no distinction. Oh, really? Right. So you That's go through all that together. You wear the same warfare insignia. Oh. The enlisted guys wear this big gold, gaudy, <clears throat> what we call trident, right, on their uniform, just like, just like the officers do. I was a SEAL officer just like the SEAL officers do. So 
um, there it, it is much more flat. Mm. It's it's much more collaborative to, right. to use a sort of Chris Ryan term um, right. uh, and right. cooperative in, in its nature than it is hierarchical. Huh. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Chris, okay, can I refill. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's like, take a would you like a take a, a break here? Un- unhook your yeah. Well, I'm... All right, we got our tea. Uh, maybe I'll do this again. Classic. Classic. <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm still maybe, figuring maybe, it out. When's your this. birthday, Chris? Uh, February. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it has to wait, you know, about nine months. But uh-huh. maybe for your birthday or some random holiday, I'll, I'll get you one of those like, oh, clappers. Clapper, like, then you yeah, will be yeah. fully arrived as a <laughs> podcast director. <laughs> I got to get an assistant to do it, yeah. though. It's, it's no good for the star to do it. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about uh, non-state violence, and I, and I, I don't mean to, to you know have this whole conversation be about the military, although it is Memorial Day, so there's there's something That's to right. be said for that. Um, but uh, we're talking about not. You were saying that it seemed like wars these days are more for protecting the monopoly, monopoly on violence as opposed to defending corporate uh, interests and so on. Because um, I guess the corporate interests are so dominant now that nobody's really well, I guess rising up against them. The thesis of my my work in journalism, and you know, um, this has definitely been a nonlinear telling. But like, you know, post active duty service, I transitioned into this this role of journalism. You know, which when I'm joking, I say like I I traded my my gun for a camera. But like, what I have covered in especially early on is kind of the sort of rise of non-state actors, right? right? And this fundamental tectonic shift in power away from the nation state as an organizing institution to non-state actors. You know, one of my first big stories was Somali pirates. I've covered drug cartels in, you know, Southern and Central America and right. West Africa and stuff. And so uh, there's those like sort of obvious non-state actors that have taken more prominence, but then there's, you know, corporations, right? As a non-state actor and you could certainly make a thesis that there's more power that resides within corporations. I mean, nowadays you could make a thesis that the state and the corporation are almost indistinguishable, right? And that's like the, the real scary part. But like what you've seen is this, this, this massive shift from power away from <clears throat> like, you know, the, the U.S.'s and the U.K.'s and all these, yeah. the nation state organizational structure, right. you know, that this is a, Arguably the the biggest change since the creation of the Westphalian state. It's mm. it's pretty incredible. In terms and of political organization, I think so. In terms of political power and where power resides, you yeah. know, obviously accelerated by globalization and technology. That's right. partially what's made it possible. You know, when um, and you know, like the classic example, although not a successful political story by any means, but um, is is the Arab Spring, which we should acknowledge has definitely turned into an Arab winter, but like, you know, like, look, this is, you know, sparked by technology, right? Yeah. Like, um, and you would have never imagined that, um, yeah. all of that stuff could come out of technology and globalization. You know, talking about these, these sort of tectonic shifts in, in the political power and military power, I, I came up with an idea years ago, uh, and you, you might be qualified to tell me whether I'm totally full of shit or not. Um, you're definitely qualified, but I'm not <laughs> sure whether. I'm t- uh, here's the idea. I, and I think I was thinking about this in the Reagan administration. Since the Reagan administration, through Clinton at least, and I believe still, uh, one of the biggest items on the military budget has been the Star Wars missile defense oh, system. Right. right. right? Uh, and 
I think it's black budget, so I think we don't know exactly how much it is, but it's in the billions and it's it's huge. I think it's way north of the billions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it's so you look at this and you say they're spending tons and tons of money on uh, a system designed to protect against intercontinental ballistic missiles that you know where they're coming from. There's no question. You've already got mutual assured destruction. So whoever, you know, if, if this Russia shoots a missile at New York, they already know that they're going to be, Moscow is going to be vaporized by the time it gets here. It's, yeah. So there's, there's already this weird kind of uh, system in place to stop that from happening. Um, but but they're setting up this system, which seems to be a satellite system, two satellite systems, one for detection. So it's sort of mapping, you know, monitoring every place to notice the second uh, a missile is shot off. And then another satellite system, which either through laser or, the, you know, these tiny pebbles or whatever they called it. Sure. There are different ways that they would shoot and blow this thing up when it's out of the atmosphere. And okay, never works. Every test is a fuck up. They say it's like trying to shoot one bullet with another bullet. And of course it doesn't work, but they keep testing it every once in a while and keep doing it. I was thinking about this and it's like, wait a minute. The, the ratio of investment for payoff just seems totally wrong. I don't understand why. I mean, they're spending so much money on something that ostensibly is totally unnecessary. And then it occurred to me, like, maybe that's just a cover story. And the cover story is perfect because they are developing two satellite systems. So the cover story has to like actually show what they're doing. But it but in fact what they're doing is they're developing a satellite system that will monitor every point on the earth at all times and another satellite system that can shoot lasers or whatever to the surface of the earth from any place at any time. And so they're working toward a situation where a bunch of guys in a bunker outside of Vegas are going to be able to blow up any building anywhere with five minutes notice. And we're already almost there with drones, right? But I, I see drones as sort of an intermediate stage. Mm -hmm. And what they're going to have soon, if they don't already, is a fixed system of global domination by, and all you need is a few hundred people to run it. So you talk about you know these pivotal moments in human history. Every war before now, you had to convince your population to support it. You had to be like, hey, those yeah. Krauts are really yeah. you know they're subhuman, and the mm -hmm. Japs and the, the the you know right. whatever. You had to convince enough people to support it that they would go over there and risk their lives or their children's lives. Now, if you just have a couple hundred guys with computer consoles, you don't even need to convince your population that it's worth doing. Yeah. I think you're you're paying close to well. I guess the first thing that I sh should say is I think you gave far too much credit that I am qualified to answer this. <laughs> I I definitely don't feel qualified, uh, but I'm also you know a TV yeah. personality, sure, so I'm happy to opine, why right? Opine, <laughs> you know. I'm happy to give a ton of alternative facts and misinformation about it. Please you know? do, like, please do. Uh, yeah. Um, so it's uh, the beauty of television. Uh, we'll fix it in post, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> These days, they just don't fix it. Yeah. They just Why say bother? wrong shit. Yeah. And then people believe wrong shit. It's, it's insane. It's, it's a whole other conversation. Yeah. But uh, I, I believe, like, I'm a lot less worried about Star Wars than I am 
about like the misinformation age that we're living in. Yeah. Right. If you. Which is so ironic because supposedly all this technology was supposed to give us access to real information. You know, remember that was the promise of the internet that now you can look up anything and no more bullshit, no more bar bets, just Google it, you know? You know, Peter Thiel, the, uh, the, yeah. the VC, uh, like on, in, in, on his office, he's got this, this great quote that says, uh, we, uh, uh, we wanted flying cars and we got 140 characters, yeah. right? Just yeah. to say, like, we haven't come as far as we think we've come. But... You know, the Louis C.K. bit mm. uh, where he's on the airplane and there's Wi-Fi. You haven't seen this bit? No. Oh, it's a great bit. And it actually was the genesis of this book I've been working on forever. Um, yeah, he's, he's on an airplane and there's Wi-Fi and he's like, wow, I didn't know there was Wi-Fi in airplanes. This is amazing. This is so great. And he's checking his email and then something goes wrong and the, the stewardess says, sorry, we have to reset the router. It'll be five minutes before the Wi-Fi is back. And the guy next to him leans over and says, this is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes into this whole thing about how, like, you know, it, it, we complain that the, that the chair doesn't go back. But you're sitting in a chair in the sky, yeah. you yeah, know, yeah, and he yeah, goes yeah. through all these examples of how technology becomes like the wonders of technology become normalized immediately. And then we just complain about how they don't work. And at the end of it, he says, these days, everything's amazing, but nobody's happy. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So anyway, I interrupted so, you. No, I, look, I want to come back to this idea that like the current state of, of, of the level at which people are informed is more perilous than sort mm -hmm. of nuclear Armageddon from the sky, mm -hmm. right? Than, than whatever the Skynet, is that the Terminator thing, Skynet? Skynet? Yeah, then Skynet yeah. coming alive, yeah. right? It, yeah. that, that's a greater threat. That this one over here, the, the, the lack of information and, and the, the lack of intellect is, is a greater threat to our livelihood than the other. But what, what I'll say about the Star Wars technology and, and, and all of these <clears throat> Is that one we look increasingly like North Korea every time one of these <clears throat> you know things doesn't work? But I don't know. I just did a um, a special for Vice HBO on the uh, you know we have this this Friday night show on HBO and I mm. do like little it's little documentaries. Oh, really, you. really good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm very proud of the work and um, and I covered our aging nuclear triad, mm. right? Um, and so I and and one of the things I. You know, I spent the night in Ohio-class nuclear submarine hmm. sleeping next to a weapon of mass destruction, right? These things, they have 24 Trident nuclear missiles on them. Each one of these submarines contains more firepower than all of the collective ordnance and bombs, including Hiroshima and Nagasaki, dropped in all of World War II by both the Axis and Allied powers. So think about every bullet fucking shot and every bomb dropped in all of World War II by both sides, including the nukes, and one <laughs> nuclear submarine floating right out there in the Pacific, yeah. right, one block west of you, right, has more firepower than that, right? And we got multiple of these things cruising around the world. It's almost mind-boggling, right? Well, it is because it seems out of proportion to the Earth. It certainly is out of proportion to the Earth, yeah. right? I mean, it's... It's almost incalculable, right? Except yeah. like if somebody showed you like on a on a piece of paper. So like you know, it's like it's like the equivalent of 
a guy wanting to have a bigger dick and and ending up with a dick that's eight blocks long. I mean, it, it's like totally not useful for the purpose that it's supposedly designed for. I mean, what are you going to do? You're not going to blow up. I, I mean, Nagasaki, that was pretty effective. Well, this, you know? is, well, this is getting, this is actually going to come back to uh, what I think about the, the Star Wars program, which I have no idea what iteration of life it is in now. But so, so we got these nuclear subs. My report, I spend, you know, a couple nights on the nuclear sub. Then I go down into one of these bunkers hmm. in Wyoming, right. underground, you know, that can survive nuclear attack and will will launch even if all life on Earth and you know, and, and I pull up, <laughs> which is great, right? Yeah, all, all life on Earth is already dead, but it's, it'll, yes. it'll still launch. And it's fail like safe. These two junior Air Force <laughs> officers in there pulling a twenty-four hour shift, yeah. like who got to turn the keys and stuff. Yeah. I did that, and then I went. I actually got to fly. This part got cut from the broadcast, which uh, you know. Hand me a Kleenex, I'll cry about it. But yeah. like, you know, the editing, editing room floor is brutal. They let me fly a B-52 strategic bomber. Really? Like I got up there in the left seat and I did some yanking and banking and it was awesome, <laughs> right? Nu- so, nuclear armed, of course. Well, so we don't actually fly them uh, in the planes anymore because we've had too many <laughs> broken arrows. Have you heard this term? I have. And, yeah. I, and there was also Meaning one. like we've accidentally dropped a bomb while we were flying it around. Off. That didn't yeah. go off. Yeah, 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 yeah. Luckily for Georgia. Yeah, so we don't, yeah. we don't actively load them on the planes, but we keep them right there. Hmm. And then we fly the planes around in practice right. so that in the event of you know, nuclear Armageddon, we can load them up into the belly. Yeah. But there was one recently, within the last five years, where it was carrying a nuclear bomb. I don't know if it was a B or what what it was, but the pilots didn't know. And they later, they realized, like, they had flown a nuclear weapon from, you know, Washington to Florida or something. And like, oh, well. So, yeah. So, for that reason, they try not to put them in the plane anymore. Plus, like, these airframes are fucking old. Like, the one I flew... It had been flown by three <clears throat> generations. The grandfather had flown it then in, in Vietnam, right? Like the, uh, the son had flown it and now his grandson was flying it, right? By the time they retire this thing, uh, I think something, it'll have been in service like 80 years or something, which is great. That's what's flying the, nucle- the nukes around, by right. the way. So right. anyways, like as entertaining as that is, I, I got to <clears throat> study our nuclear triad. And something that I learned as I was studying it is that the nuclear triad, there was no prominent defense academic thinker who said like, listen, we need to create the nuclear triad because like, what if like the, what if the, the missiles, like the land-based ICBMs get obliterated and we can't launch those right. and like the So the triad the is get, land, sea, air. Actually the triad is land, sea, and air, right. which coincidentally is the SEAL acronym. SEAL uh-huh. stands for sea, air, and land. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. so yeah, so it's the it's the subs, right, which hold the nuclear missiles. Uh, and then the second leg of the the triangle is the um, the land based intercontinental ballistic missiles in the bunkers. Right. And then the third leg are the strategic bombers. Right. They used to call SAC strategic air right. command. Right. All these things have like 
He's like funny, homoerotic terms, Acronyms, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so, so there's. Like, <laughs> I'm glad you said homoerotic. I, I didn't yeah. want to go there. I've already bad mouthed. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you can't see Chris winking at me on, on the video. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta be a Patreon yeah, supporter yeah, yeah, exactly. for that. Uh, so, <laughs> so what I learned about the the nuclear triad is like, it was never a strategic design. Mm. Nobody figured out what the nuclear triad was was a result of inter-service rivalry. Right. There was all this like spending and funding, right? Yeah. So the Navy needed their piece, right. the Air Force needed their piece, right. right? Like even the Army had to get in on the action. So it really came out as a product of inter-service rivalry. And then we like ex post facto justified it like we can't live without the nuclear triad. I basically got the Undersecretary of Defense to say <clears throat> like, <clears throat> look, there's some budget cuts coming. If push came to shove, we could probably get away with just the submarines, right. right? Like we're about to spend like hundreds of billions of dollars on new nukes and new platforms and all this shit, right? Like basically we don't really need them. I mean, even if you're in the like, we might go to nuclear war at some point. We've never used these things ever, right? right? Like, right. you know. They're I, designed not to <clears throat> ever be used. Well, that's the other, like, the, you gotta be careful like even a smart guy like you going like too far down the rabbit hole uh-huh. of, of nuclear logic will uh-huh. like feel pretty damn insane. Yeah, like, you're it, in it, a Kubrick film suddenly. It, really, like an upside down Kubrick film on yeah. acid yeah. underwater. Yeah. You know, yeah. like so it gets a little crazy. But even if you subscribe to the logic of having them, we have like disproportionate overkill, which is like bankrupting us. There's some stat in the film, which you can see, which tells you that like we could have, with the money we spent on nuclear weapons we never used, we could have like funded like the Department of Education, the Department of Labor, <clears throat> like for like a thousand years, right? Well, see that that brings me to a question. I, I wasn't sure whether you know it was too radical to ask or not, but the amount of money w- that we and other countries spend, but even if you just look at us because we spend so much more than everyone else. If we go back to the earlier part of this conversation where we're saying Boko Haram, you know, arose from a a quest for justice, as I would say did ISIS, as I would say did, you know, pretty much every non-state violent um, actor in the world. If we just took half the money that we'd spent on the military and, in other words, back to the, the Kennedy Peace Corps yes. seal. If, if we had funded the Peace Corps and programs like the Peace Corps with the, the vehemence and the enthusiasm that we funded military, wouldn't the world be a much safer and, and more beautiful place? I know I sound like a fucking hippie there, yeah. but no, it seems no, like, logical. Like I, will, I will agree with you like a hippie, right? And I don't think that should be a controversial or unpatriotic idea. Yeah. I think it should be a pragmatic idea. And when I think about to like close the loop on the Star Wars program and all of that stuff, um, yeah, like, look, do I think they're trying, there's treaties that prevent you from weaponizing space and all that stuff, or hmm. theoretically prevent you, but, you know, dual use technology, like all that stuff. Um, do, I, do I think that there's a conspiracy to build like a super weapon from space like probably not do i think that there is like inner service rivalry and defense contracting like demand frothiness 
just the way there was to build up our nuclear arsenal? Like, right. absolutely. Right. I so do. you think it's just a, a, a big uh, money thing? Yeah, I mean, in, yeah. in some ways, a lot of this stuff is yeah. military corporate welfare, yeah. for sure. sure. Right? And again, like, I have no problem, like, calling a right. spade a spade on that. And all, by the way, many of my friends from the military would agree because they know, like, we spend more than the next... 10 militaries combined, yeah. right? Like the vast amount of overkill. And the, the real question, the most important thing we've said during our talk here today is, is this, right? Like, that, like it is a zero-sum game. There is an opportunity cost. And we didn't like fund every time. Like at some level, it's like really complicated. <clears throat> and at some level, it's really simple, right? Like either you're going to like spend money to break things or you're going to spend money to build things, yeah. right? And even in our own lives, like, like if you spend all your money breaking shit, like you end up broken, right? Ultimately, like we want to build things and like we want to like build a better place and all that. So I do, you know, when I cover the aging nuclear triad, like I do think it is a public service. I think transparency is a public service, and I think letting people know about like, you know, these, these issues and, and, and airing them out, the sort of sunshine is good for democracy principle. Yeah. Like I do think that's a public service and then yeah, that's sure. my like, my kind of like drive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's what gets me the Wikipedia page. Baby. Fuck yeah. And that you take your same like macho intrepidness, uh, into that world that you took into the previous worlds you've been in. Kick some ass. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Hey, listen. Uh, your voice is starting I to go. Know, My so voice bad. is fucked. Both of us have been sick the last few days, uh, and there are people waiting for us to have lunch. So I say I could talk to you for another like six hours, easy for sure. You, you know uh, William Butler Yeats, the poet. Yeah. He said a, a poem is never finished, merely abandoned. I love that. So what do you say we abandon this for now and? Uh, pick it up later i would love to that's an honor um, what uh i mean you've got a wikipedia page yeah. where where else can people learn about you they can look up your stuff on vice yeah yeah i mean i'm uh i'm googleable, googleable. If, that's a, if that if that's a thing uh -huh. um you know i i i'm trying to get better about promoting <clears throat> my stuff on social media i have right. a a couple big projects as you know coming up um uh, that we've talked about offline in the works, but um, can you talk about them on, or they're, they're still I, like one? I'll we're, just... We were going to talk about penguin sex too, but we'll do that offline, right? Yeah, we... <laughs> but is penguin sex not the best <laughs> cliffhanger of all time? <laughs> Tune in next yeah. week for penguin sex. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, like uh, let's do it again. I'll talk about all the cool new projects right, cool. that I'm doing, but uh, it's been. It's been fun. Yeah. We, we went high and low, as we like to do. High and low. That's the way to do it. All right. Thanks, brother. Thank you, my man. Right. Yeah, that's cool. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. 
you enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. Uh, if you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. And you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at t eight. No, sorry, tspeaking.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Dot com. And uh, if you want to get some t-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, chrisryanphd.com, tangentiallyspeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other t-shirts from the same manufacturer, that's Shore Design t shirts they are fantastic i know i say this is an ad free podcast uh and this could be construed as an ad but sure design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception bennett who was the dude there decided he was going to support the podcast he sent me a bunch of shirts uh at an extreme discount to uh, help us out since bennett died the people who took over sure design t-shirts.com uh have decided to continue giving us the same deal that bennett gave us so be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in civilized to death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD, and that's at suredesigntshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at carseyblanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. 
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground. 